The views and opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of this station, JVC Broadcasting Management, or its sponsors. Welcome to Crime and Justice Radio, where we talk all things crime, justice, mayhem, and the courts with expert insiders and legal outcasts. My name is Aida Leisenring, and I'm here with Bruce Barquette. How's it going? You're not really here with me, but we're together virtually, <laughs> which is our newest, greatest thing. Uh, which is good enough. You know, I hate, I hate the world we live in. I grew up without cell phones, and I think besides just aging myself, it gave me a happier childhood than all these kids that are being bullied and have low self-esteem issues and are maybe drawn to violence with social media. And just the quality of our lives and work have gotten worse with the ability for anyone to text anyone in the middle of the night or send them (laughs) an email. But I will say this, for for this function, the, the ability to do a radio show from wherever or the ability to FaceTime your family if they live overseas uh, or a loved one who's deployed abroad. That's awesome. I'm not going to complain about that. So, uh, no, it's not a bad thing. It's actually a good so, thing. Though our clients might complain about all the surveillance. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> not our client, just anyone accused these days. It's very, very difficult to so, go. To get away with stuff. So. Yeah. So speaking of surveillance and not getting away with things, um, biggest story this week undoubtedly was the uh, beating to death of Tyree Nichols in Memphis by five uh, police officers. Um, It has been the lead story every day, every hour for a week. Um, And unfortunately, it's a bit of dog bites man in that the beating by police of a suspect, in this case, a black suspect, and in this case, by black officers, I should I should know, uh, is all too all too common. I mean, I we started this program, Crime and Justice Radio, right around the time that uh, Derek Chauvin was going to trial for uh, the death of George Floyd. And here we are 18 months later, and we're kind of back in the same um, same boat, except we don't have uh, a, a single demon. I mean, there's not a Derek Chauvin among the five officers. They all seem to have played a an, an equal role in it. And you know my take on these things. I tend to run in the other direction, just kind of it's my nature. Uh, but it makes me a little upset. It did with other cases, Chauvin, OJ, whoever, where the entire universe says, guilty as charged, let's move on to sentencing. Um, And look, from looking at the video, and I watched some of it, these cops clearly, I think, overstepped their bounds, to say the least. Um, The kicking of the suspect when he's down on the ground and surrounded by other officers. But it always bothers me when I hear everybody yelling for the lynch. That's actually right. So that that's really interesting. I'll say it just gave me a thought because it's true, like as especially as criminal defense lawyers and journalists should advocate for this as well. I know we had Erin Moriarty on from 48 Hours and she um, says she she conducts her journalism through the presumption of innocence. Um, And she's actually helped unveil 
uh, wrongfully convicted individuals as a result. But here's the question. I've never really thought about it this way, Bruce. Does the presumption of innocence carry the same weight um, it used to? And can it carry the same weight practically when we do have so much surveillance footage, cell phone footage, um, objective documentary evidence against our clients, right? We've all been there. If you've done enough criminal cases in this century, we've all been there where someone comes to you and there's video of the event, uh, sometimes from multiple angles, forget witnesses that can describe it, but actual video, cell phone forensics demonstrating the person's intent or motive potentially before and after the crime. Um, uh, cell site tower data. When you put all of this, all of this digital forensic evidence together, it becomes the objective evidence, or at least that's how it's going to be touted at court, right? And we've had cases where the video made the person look guilty. Um, but once you broke it down and showed different angles and put it in context or slowed it down, the narrative changed. So it is possible to overcome that. But I think that, you know, complaining about the presumption of innocence, sometimes a video is very clearly going to show what happened. It may not show mitigation of where the officers came from, what kind of a life they lived, why they were in that position, what motivated them to do so, what was in their state of mind and in their heads, maybe stuff that contributes to a lesser sentence if they become convicted. But how can you have that presumption when the video doesn't lie? Well, it does lie and it it can lie. And I, I can think of a specific case that we had where it did lie, where our client was demonized as a racist, uh, xenophobe um, who ran over somebody because he thought he was, our client supposedly thought the person was Arabic and called him Hassan or something, go back to your country. And it turned out the video footage of that was indeed lying. It was doctored, it was altered, parts of it were deleted, and ultimately the case against our client was dismissed in the middle of jury selection. Uh, I'm not saying I'm not saying that's the case here. We don't know it one way or the other, but it bothers me to my core to have an entire country come to a conclusion before any evidence uh, has been introduced into court, before an attorney has had a chance to scrutinize it. It may be that they are guilty of sin, but you don't know that now and you can't know it now. But the public isn't the jury. And they're allowed to be they're allowed to be disgusted by what they saw. And journalists are allowed to report on it insofar as they say, here's the video. Here's what the allegations are. uh, Here's the individual that was murdered. Here's his little life story. Here's uh, the officers, their names. What what how does that pierce the presumption of innocence? How does that deflate it? That's reporting facts allegations it, it, it neither deflates it nor uh, or um pierces it it ignores it it ignores it. It, it 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 allows the um the tabloid nature the glory or or the um just kind of the i don't know the the, the crowd surging forward and ignoring everything and this is the only thing you can say 
the only thing you can do is these cops went overboard. They're guilty. The system's racist. And now we're hearing calls from our good friends on the left about defunding the police again, because that's the problem. It, well, it, it, let, let me it, ask you this. How would you report on it? You're a, jur- you're, you're a criminal defense lawyer. Switch well, hats. You're a journalist. What would you it, say? It's simple. You, you report what you know. An individual died after being, uh, um, I, I guess. Be- beaten to death. Well, not, I don't know if he's beaten. Beaten by several police officers during the course of an arrest. I would have withheld the video, video footage. If I'm these cops' lawyers, I scream from the top of the courthouse. Do not release this because if you release this video, we won't be able to get a fair trial anywhere. Where did the video the come from? Uh, various. There's uh, several sources. There's some surveillance video uh, that overlooks the corner, and there are there's so also Freedom of Information camera. Act. Body that's camera. not protected. That's not private. Freedom, that's Freedom of Information doesn't trump necessarily a client's right to a fair trial. We withhold things. First all Amendment. We withhold things um, all the time. Um, because they are sensitive or because they can affect the jury uh, pool and you don't want that information leaked out ahead of time. And look, I don't know. I shouldn't say I don't know. I have a gut the same way everybody else has a gut feeling about this, but it bothers me that we all have this same feeling and that everybody has to run in a single direction. And that if you dare even offer, like what I'm doing now, a pause, hey, let's just take a moment and consider the possibility that there may be some defense here or some explanation. You run the risk of being labeled a racist. You run the risk of, of seeming like an extremist. Um, I, I, it bothers me. It bothers me. It will. I used the word lynching before, and I flinched after I used it. But it's what happens, not lynching in the, in the South racist sense, lynching in the Old West sense where the crowd comes to the jailhouse and grabs the suspect out of the jail cell and executes him before the trial happens. Um, and, and these officers deserve a right to a fair trial. They deserve a right to a defense. They deserve a right to have their attorneys investigate the case before they're convicted in the eyes of the public, because we're already past that point. There's right, no jury in Memphis. You're complaining about... There's unfavorable evidence. Let's say there was a there was a camera that captured part of it, not all of it. And you really couldn't tell from the camera. You wouldn't be complaining about the prejudicial nature of that surveillance. I mean, it's out there. If I was a journalist, I'd go to that building. I'd retrieve a copy and I'd publish it to show part of the evidence that's absolutely going to be considered a trial. Sure. Why can't people say? Uh, it looks really bad, and it is really bad, but let's hold our judgment for a moment until the case unfolds. 12 jurors. Because guess what? Because I'm, I'm not a juror, so I don't have to promise to follow the law. I'm a middle-aged mom in Kansas looking at CNN and seeing the video footage, and guess what? I'm allowed to be enraged by what I see. Of course you, you are. Know, do I, do I think it's... Are. Let yeah. me ask this. Do these, is there, are there 12 jurors uh, in the state of Tennessee um, that are going to get on, on in that jury and be able to quit these cops? We already know the answer to that, and that's trouble. Right, right. But but here's the problem. Your, your question assumes that the 
only reason or that the reason why they wouldn't be acquitted was out of fear. Sometimes the evidence is so overwhelming that it almost buries the defense lawyer too. <laughs> you know, like it's, it's, you, 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 we're not just defense lawyers because we try to get people off that are possibly guilty. That's not what we do, right? Um, we do participate in exonerations. We do negotiate with the government and say, whoa, 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 15 years isn't appropriate here. Here's what happened just before the crime took place. We 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 recharacterize the narrative, hopefully consistently with the truth and try to talk sense into the, the prosecution or sometimes talk sense into our client on accepting responsibility, right? So we wear many different hats on TV. We're just the sleazebags that try to win cases where defendants are guilty. That's not what we do in practice. Um, no, it's not. But I look, I I didn't like it much when it happened with it starts with, oh, I mean, OJ is the first case I can think of where I'm like, oh, well, let's see what the evidence shows. Let's see what right. the evidence shows. And it may be well, that, you know, and people will tell me, well, the evidence shows that OJ committed these murders and might you might be right. Well, let's go let's go take that presumption of innocence of yours okay. and talk about Donald Trump the grand jury that's being convened to investigate <laughs> Donald Trump <laughs> for uh, misrepresenting finances, falsifying business records in the first yeah. degree a class C felony. Uh, let's go. Let, let's let's go protect his presumption of innocence. Why do we need a grand jury? Let's just convict and incarcerate Trump. How about that? Is that is that yeah. little 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 you turn there, Mr. Barquette. Yeah. No, look, um Donald Trump um needs no defense from me. Um we'll see what happens. Uh one of the prosecutors who But explain explain what's going on right now. Okay, so, according so to the New York the, Times and the, the media. Manhattan District Attorney's Office, Alvin Bragg, who uh it was reported had abandoned uh, a Trump prosecution that was being led by Mark Pomerantz, one of the most prominent attorneys in New York City, former chief of the criminal division of the Southern District of New York, uh, was brought on by Bragg specifically to investigate and prosecute Trump. And when the prosecution seemed to be uh, being, for lack of a better word, uh, tabled or dumped, uh, Pomerantz quit. And wrote a stinging letter saying that the Manhattan District Attorney's Office was ignoring the obvious evidence of Trump's criminal culpability uh, and outlined some of that. Well, now we know that the Trump organization was convicted. Uh, we talked about a few weeks ago. And now it seems the grand jury is investigating um, Trump himself for filing returns or notices on campaign finance and failing to forms, campaign finance forms, and failing to disclose uh, payments he made to Stormy Daniels uh, or characterizing those payments as something that they were not. And um, that grand jury seems to be up and running. Now, this is not the same prosecution or the same criminal acts that Tom Rance was investigating, or not all of them anyway. Right. And what's interesting is right now, none of the media is reporting exactly what charges he's being investigated for, but I think we can agree that it might be falsifying business records in the first degree, which is a class E felony, which doesn't have mandatory jail time, but 
in the worst case scenario, someone can be sentenced anywhere from one and a third to four. It's a nonviolent e-felony. And then there's some of those weird like section 14-209 enforcement of penalties for violations of campaign finance uh, laws. But that one, I believe, is a misdemeanor. But here's something interesting. I'm curious, and I don't know if this will apply, but assuming those are the charges, I wonder, is there a statute of limitation problem here? Because the conduct allegedly committed was in 2015 or 2016. The statute of limitations on a class E nonviolent felony in New York is, I believe, five years. Now, it may be that 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 statute begins as soon as it was discovered. But even then, I don't think so. I do not think so. Unless there's a continuing obligation under the campaign finance law to report accurately, kind of like your taxes. Right. Well, and I would think Calvin Bragg would have would have would have consulted on the statute of limitation well, before it began. That's a I mean, that's why you're a, a, an excellent lawyer. That's a great question uh that I hadn't thought of until you just said it. It would have been nice if you had mentioned it to me at some point during the day and I could have looked at it. But then I'm going really to double just, down on that idea. I have another. I have another well, idea for defense. For Trump. Yes. Uh, re- remember this. Remember, COVID told the statute of limitations for a couple of years. Ah. So I, don't ooh. That, I don't know if that helps or hurts Trump. Uh, but we're in 2023, well, so it, he doesn't have. It couldn't have told. It, it only. Yeah. It. It only. The tolling went from March of 2020 to October of 2020. So I think he would still be outside uh, the five years. Yeah, he'd be outside the five years. But also, there's a constitutional right to a speedy trial. And there's this case that's not used very frequently in litigation because it's very specific to a set of circumstances called Singer. And you can file a motion to dismiss based on Singer. And what Singer's some of the case law supporting Singer says is that if the prosecutor was aware of the allegations and the evidence and, and failed, sat on it for years and years and years, you can move to have the case dismissed pursuant to speedy trial on a constitutional basis, not a statutory basis based on Singer. Uh, yes, we've done Singer hearings here. Um, I did one. These are these are typically done when someone's been out on a warrant in like Guatemala, yeah. and the defense lawyer says you could have gotten a Interpol red notice, and you know you could have made more efforts to find him and bring him back to the country. To me, Stormy, if you say uh, criminal um, grand jury and Stormy Daniels, I yawn. Of all the things that Trump is reputed to have been involved in, the least interesting to me is that he had sex with a hooker and and lied about it later, or paid her off with some slush. Easy there. I don't know if she's a hooker, but um, Uh, or maybe she was. I don't know. But here's the thing, Excuse me, I mixed up my my sex worker um, name. I'm, I'm, sexual I'm, harassment I'm, training tomorrow <laughs> begins at 9 a.m. sharp. <laughs> sex workers here. I don't think I have to worry about um, so, I'll say this, though. It's often the kind of most ludicrous, silly case that brings down kings, right? I mean, think about, think yeah. about the misconduct and allegations that 
Chief Burke was alleged to have done and committed over the years. And what brought him down? Well, uh, talking about James Burke, the former chief of the Suffolk County Police Department, yeah, yeah. who was brought down for beating and then lying, beating a suspect, ironically, uh, given Great. today's news. Uh, Chris Loeb, the suspect, our former client, lived. Uh, and then lying about it. And he ended up doing four years in federal prison. And that ultimately led to the indictment and um, prosecution. And what he did was wrong. But we always uh, we always say, you know, a lot of people say, I can't believe this, this man was brought down by ultimately a drug addict who did, in fact, steal from his car. Well, we're running out of time for... This so first this is, segment. This segment. Look, look, we'll we'll be back after this. Before we break, I uh, want to mention uh, our chief sponsor and uh, your employer and mine, which is our law firm, Barquette Epstein, Kieran, Aldea, and Maturko. You can reach us at our main number, which is 516-745-1500, or on our website, website barquetteepstein.com. We handle all kinds of litigation from DWIs to the most complicated federal um, charges and appellate work. We'll be right back after this to talk about the possible loss of DNA evidence. Welcome back to Crime and Justice Radio. My name is Aida Leisenring. I'm here with Bruce Barquette. Um, and we're going to talk about the destruction of critical evidence um, that happens not just in dramatic warehouse fires as it occurred uh, this last December, the NYPD warehouse in Red Hook, Brooklyn, went to flames. Let's let's stop Uh, for a second and sorry to interrupt and walk through the fire and the warehouse. And so we, we have people, I don't think, realize this, even lawyers. All the evidence that's gathered in criminal cases has to be stored someplace. And in a city like New York with 9 million people and literally tens of thousands of of arrests every year, you have hundreds of thousands of pieces of evidence that has to be held someplace. Some of the evidence is, you know, innocuous or fungible cash, uh, maybe stolen merchandise, a gun here or there. Um, drugs, but some of it is very critical, DNA, um, biological evidence, and so forth. And apparently there was a huge, not apparently, there was a huge warehouse fire in Red Hook, Brooklyn, near the Metropolitan Detention Center, um, which is the federal lockup, and a, a, a significant amount of evidence was destroyed. And what happens to the criminal cases, some of them, some of those still open, some closed, is a very serious question, and I think it's been underreported uh, and under-discussed by the media because there's going to be huge ramifications. Right, and 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 our our friend and pal and famous civil rights lawyer Ron Kuby was cited in I think an article for the Gothamist uh, talking about how uh, horrifying the impact is going to be on overturning wrongful conviction cases. And also, it's alleged that it'll result in the closing of cold cases where uh, the perpetrators were still undiscovered. But this particular warehouse had uh, DNA evidence stored from cases uh, stemming back to 2012 and earlier. 
Um, and it burned down, although the NYPD alleges that no rape kits were stored there. And I'm not very confident that that's necessarily true. Um, it stored clothing, evidence, blouses, hats, shirts, you know, ammunition, and all sorts of genetic, potential genetic material uh, that was discovered and collected with respect to violent, serious felony offenses, burglaries, shootings, murders, etc. Um, we have with us a very special guest, a dear friend uh, who I met when I interned at the Innocence Project. Alan Newton is on the line. Um, he was exonerated in 2006 of rape, robbery, and assault charges. And he began asking for DNA testing in 1994. And his request was denied because the evidence had been presumed lost. Um, in 2005, the Innocence Project was able, their request uh, to convince the district attorney's office to find, locate this rape kit after an exhaustive search. And it ultimately exonerated Alan Newton, who then went on to be free be vindicated and do some great work for legislation, um, a volunteer for people at risk of being falsely arrested, um, and so forth. Alan, are you on? Yes. Yes. Good evening. Well, I, thank you so much. Oh, thank you so much for coming on this show. Um, you spent years trying to locate the evidence in your case. And a lot of people don't understand that. They think, well, if you're innocent and evidence was collected, you get a lawyer, you get your lawyer to ask the DA's office to go find the evidence, and then you have it tested and boom, you're either exonerated or you're not. How does it really work, Alan? Um, it doesn't really work like that. And this fire and the flood that they had back in 2012, I believe, Sandy Hook, is really concerning to me because when I was trying to find the evidence of my case, the district attorney's office and the police department, they was both coming up with excuses that they couldn't really document. The evidence got lost, destroyed, and but there wasn't any evidence to, to show what they was talking about. And why this is so concerning to me, because this recent fire and the flood, Sandy, in 2012, is really going to give the city a lot of cover and a lot of excuses to be able to tell the courts that the evidence that people are looking for to prove their innocence got burnt up in the fire, even though they won't have paperwork to show that the evidence may have actually been in that facility. One of the That's a good point. So, yes. so they're going to say, so, so a lot of times, uh, just, just so our, our listeners get it, a lot of times, I mean, this is what the Innocence Project and other organizations and attorneys spend years and years and years doing, is just actually locating the evidence, right? And so... Correct. Um, You'll, you'll look at the clerk's office. They'll say, we don't have it. It should be stored at the DA's office. DA's office will say, we don't have it. It should be stored with the police. The police will say, not here at this precinct, but at this facility. And they'll keep passing the buck. 
And this fire, as well as the flood that occurred previously in the same facility, uh, gives the excuse of all those involved in law enforcement, be it the courts, the clerks, the DA's offices, the NYPD, to say, ah, your evidence was destroyed in a fire, even though it may not be in that warehouse. Well, hey, Alan, uh, Bruce Barquette here. Wel- welcome to Crime and Justice Radio. Thanks for coming on. Thank you. Uh, I- I'm sorry about the, 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 obviously, that you spent 13 and a half years in prison uh, for something you clearly didn't do. And um, wait, I, my, my, my take on what the government will do with the wrongful conviction case, they'll say, so sad, too bad. Nothing we can do for you. And for the pending open cases, <clears throat> they will seek to get other evidence in that they otherwise can't, complaining that it wasn't their fault that the warehouse burned the evidence down or, or, or the evidence was destroyed. They'll take both sides of the issue, uh, unless I misunderstand Correct. how prosecutors work. Um, I, want, I want to ask you a question or two about your own case. I mean, this is, this is just horrific. Um, you were... Convicted in 1985. So 1990, DNA, correct. 1985, right? 85, you're exonerated. And is that right? And you're exonerated in 2006? Correct. Uh, so how much time? I said you did 13 and a half years, but that wasn't right. How much time did you do? I did 22 altogether. Count oh my when God. I got arrested in 1984 to when I got exonerated in 2006. Wow. And in this instance, the DNA, the way DNA has evolved, is it kind of came on the scene uh, in the late 80s. It started to be used. And by the early 90s, Barry Sheck was using it just at its at its very early um, levels or early, early time when it just started to be used in, in, as evidence in criminal cases. They were still doing uh, hearings to determine whether or not it was reliable. But by the time we get to 2000, 2000, it was widely accepted. And so and it, why did it take so long to get this evidence and get it analyzed? Because the major problem was they was claiming that they didn't know where it was. They was claiming that it, it, after it was used at trial, and it went to the, the property clerk's office in the Bronx. The claim was they never was able to locate it, even though it went to a warehouse in Queens, because I tried a, a post-conviction motion, and the evidence was produced at the medical examiner's office. So after that testing was done, and the medical examiner's office claimed there wasn't any biological evidence, it was sent back to Queens instead of being sent to the Bronx. So this is why it took so long for them to produce the evidence. And it was only after I brought the Innocence Project on the case that they was able to convince the district attorney's office in the Bronx to do a more thorough search. And that's when it was found. And this is the interesting wow. part. In my civil suit against the city, the federal judge actually told the city, the only reason why you're here is because you found this man's evidence. And lo and behold, nobody else in New York City 
has gotten exonerated on DNA evidence because of a rape kit. And an interesting story about the fire in December, when I read it, I think it was some commanding officer said, well, the rape kits, like you said, are not at this location. But they have no, you see, it wasn't no comment about where they at. So it's going to be a lack of accounting. It's going to be a lack of responsibility. And, and, and it's going to be hard to follow up on this because unless they can really say what evidence was in that warehouse and have a, a true accountant, they're going to just be, um, I think this gives some cover in the long run when it comes to the courts. And like you said earlier, Bruce, the evidence they don't have, the cases that go in the trial, they're going to try to come up with other evidence to convict people anyway. And look, you mentioned the federal judge. I, I noticed that the the you went to trial in your civil rights action, and you the jury awarded you eighteen million dollars. Who was the judge, and why did he reduce the award to twelve? Do you know? Do you remember the judge's name? The Honorable Scheinman, Judge Scheinman, the same oh, one really? that made the great decision on the stop and frisk case against the city. And, so, and she reduced the award from 18 to 12? What was her reasoning for that? Yes. Well, she basically was going on the decision because, remember, the, the Blasio, man, the Blasio had settled with the Central Park Five, and he basically awarded them like a million dollars a year. And she said that was uh, the president was set with that. So I was only able to sue for a certain amount of years because under the civil rights statute, those were the years when the city was saying they couldn't locate the rape kit. So I was only able to sue for those particular 12 years. So that's why she reduced it to 12. Oh, I see. Uh, so in other words, you weren't able to, even though you were innocent, you weren't able to collect in federal court for the time prior to when they should have produced the rape kit. It was only after I started asking for it and when they said they didn't have it. And those were the last 12 years that the court ruled that I was only entitled for 94 to 2006. So, Alan, what have you been doing with yourself since 2006? Well, uh, since I've been home, uh, got married, got divorced. I've got a son now. He's 11 years old. And I graduated college. I still do speaking engagements in reference to criminal justice reform. And I've been dabbling in selling real estate. And so I'm just trying to live my best life now, Bruce. And, and, and every now and then, he and Vanessa and I and Barry Shack will participate in karaoke that I haven't done any since uh, the pandemic. Yes, uh, yes, indeed. Yes, indeed, though. Alan, tell Bruce yes, how good indeed. I am. <laughs> you're, you're excellent. You're excellent, I must say. <laughs> well, let me, let me ask you a serious question. How do you deal with yes. two decades of being told it's lost, it's gone, it's destroyed when it's your only hope. Like, were there times that you said it's over, uh, you felt hopeless, you were ready to give up? I felt like that every time, every time I got the motion denied because 
it was never denied on the merits when I asked for the, the DNA evidence. It was only denied because the city said they couldn't find it. And but one thing they was never able to prove or where was where did it go once it left the courthouse? They never was able to show anybody. They never produced to the courts, so they never produced to me. So that always gave me a little hope. Listen, I'm gonna prove my innocence because I think the evidence is out there. So, like you said, I was always down, always got depressed every time my motion got denied, but. Just having the opportunity to be able to keep fighting, I guess, was what gave me that hope when, when everything else seemed like it was lost. Before you, um, before you got, um, before the Innocence Project uh, took you in as a client, uh, who was helping you fight that fight of finding a rape kit that the government claimed was gone or lost or destroyed that you knew would prove your innocence if discovered? Who was helping you? My whole family did a lot of running out here uh, for me. I was I was sending them on missions to the courts, to the, the DA's office, to the police department, you know, filing for your requests. But my biggest, my biggest help came from other um, jailhouse lawyers. And because I was able to share as much, you know, possible, you know, without having to deal with the fallouts of having a sexual assault conviction. So having people, other prisoners I was able to go to and, and get insights about how to file motions, how to follow up on petitions once they got denied, those were where I received the, the biggest and most support because I was, you know, dealing with people that was in the same situation with me. And, you know, I mean, when I, when I went in, when I got arrested, I didn't know anything about the law. I didn't know anything. But I, I was able to say that I was able to hold my own by the time I got exonerated because I, I, I tell people I studied law for 22 years. And so inside, between my family and other jailhouse lawyers that I met inside, that was my big support system there. And then you found your way I, to the Innocence Project. Correct. Did you write a Correct. letter? Did you write a letter? I'm, I'm curious how that happened. Um, did you write a letter and just send it there? Like, how did you get connected with them? Because they, they can't take everyone who writes them or who approaches them. I was actually referred to the Innocence Project by um, a, a lawyer or intern I used to work there. Her name was Tina Kansas. And I had hired her one time to try to find the DNA evidence because I think we had got the, the, the victim's clothing tested. And, and so once we got denied, you know, she told my family and I to reach out to the Innocence Project. And... We reached out, and my brother Tony um, called Vanessa Popkin, and and the rest is history. And, I mean, and the interesting part, Vanessa Popkin told us, she said, there's a possibility your evidence may not exist anymore. You did a lot of work. You've been looking for it because I showed them everything I was trying to do. And so they just said, you know, you got a lot of hope, and, and just 
keep believing and we're going to try everything we can. And, and she wrote a letter to the district attorney's office. And that one letter, and I guess, you know, professional courtesy, that's what I always like to say, and because I was doing the same thing for years, but the district attorney, she wrote a letter to the police department, and, and the evidence was found just like that. So, you know, it, it, we talk about this, sorry, we talk about this as if it's a happy story, and I know that you're you're better now, I mean, you, you were exonerated, you were released from prison, you have a civil settlement, like you said, you're married, divorced, but you lost 22 years, 22 years for something you didn't do, and the system just grinds along uh, as if it doesn't matter. Um, it re- and it just is infuriating to listen to you because I can imagine how frustrating it must have been to know that you didn't commit the crime, to know that if they found this evidence, it would prove that you didn't commit the crime, and to be searching for it, not for a day or a week or a month or a decade, but for 22 years. Um, that's just To me, that's gut-wrenching. Uh, and thank God for the Innocence Project, they, they took on your case and got the evidence and got the test done and you got out. But for that organization, you know, you would still have been serving your sentence uh, you could have done as much as um, like close to 30 years uh, and you'd still be on parole. It, it just is unbelievable to me that we have a system that does that and doesn't allow for free lawyers, for indigent inmates who have a colorable claim of actual innocence like you had. You have to rely, yeah, right. you had to rely on, 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 um, an organization that Barry Sheck set up, which thank God he did, but you had to rely upon that. So. Yeah, yeah, you're 100% correct. And, and, and what truly makes the situation sad, regardless of how many exonerations, it, it's because, you know, the city and police officials, they like to, like to swear up and down that a lot of these things that happen is accidents. Alan, we got got to let you go. Thanks very much. Thanks, everybody, for listening. We'll see you again next week or talk to you again next week on Crime and Justice Radio. The views and opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of this station, JVC Broadcasting Management, or its sponsors.